0: It's The Progress Pod, a production of the Franklin County Coalition for Progress. I'm Pete Mazzoni with Jeremy Kate. Each day, at least 10 Pennsylvanians die of opioid or heroin overdose. The problem can largely be attributed to the rapid rise in the abuse of opioids, including both prescription pain relievers and heroin. But there's another issue at work, and that is the stigmatization of people with substance abuse disorders. The stigma can be so strong, people will avoid treatment that can literally save their lives. Our guest today is April Brown, administrator of the Franklin Fulton Drug and Alcohol, providing treatment and recovery services for our area. April joins us to talk about how, as a community, we can work to remove those stigmas and get people the help they need before it's too late. Thanks for being with us, April.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Let's just start out with what Franklin Fulton Drug and Alcohol does. If you could just give us a broad overview.
1: Sure. Franklin Fulton Drug and Alcohol is known as the single county authority. You'll hear the phrase SCA thrown out into the community quite often. Um, There is a single county authority for every jurisdiction within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, Franklin Fulton Drug and Alcohol is actually a joinder, so we oversee both counties. Um, Some other joinders oversee three or four counties. SCAs within the state look differently, function differently. Their primary focus is to meet the needs of their local communities, so it's a great thing. Um, that SCAs can do what they need to do and have the flexibility to do those things locally, and that's why we don't all look the same or focus the
0: same. What does the landscape look like of drug and alcohol abuse in Franklin and Fulton County?
1: So it's changed. If you look at the past 10 years, the type of substances that are typically predominant with seeking out treatment have changed. We've historically been an alcohol-using community, and I would still argue we are, Um, which, you know, is a legal substance. Mm -hmm. We've definitely morphed into uh, the opioid epidemic has wreaked some havoc within both counties. It looks a little different in each county. But for Franklin, our primary right now contributing to our overdose fatalities is fentanyl. Um, Historically, that hasn't been the case. It's been heroin. It's been prescription opioids um, and what we would consider slower killers, um, like nicotine dependence with mm-hmm. tobacco and with alcohol. Um, but yeah, we're we're definitely in a zone right now within Franklin County where I would argue we're poly users. Very few users are using one primary substance. Mm-hmm. It's usually a combination of
0: multiple. What is fentanyl?
1: Fentanyl is a synthetic opiate. So there's pharmaceutical fentanyl that you would get prescribed from a doctor's office typically in certain um practices like oncology, you you know, your high-intensity So it can be a legally
0: prescribed drug.
1: Fentanyl is by far um, pharmaceutical, but then what we're seeing on the street and what we're seeing lead to fatalities is synthetic fentanyl, Mm street-made fentanyl, Um, and that's what's causing the the bulk of our our fatalities, not Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical fentanyl.
0: And are the people that are becoming addicted to fentanyl, is it starting with a legal prescription that is overfilled, you might say?
1: So it's a combination of things. Um, we've seen individuals enter treatment that have no history of addiction. And That's the classic
0: story of the, the contractor who hurts their back and, you know, gets prescribed these things, and before they know it, they're strung out.
1: Or someone that has a root canal surgery or right. wisdom teeth removal. Um, there's multiple scenarios where the introduction to an opiate is through a prescription. And not necessarily that it's overfilled, um, you know, dependence on opioids can start very, very quickly. In fact, research shows sometimes within seven days of their use.
0: Wow, um, seven days.
1: And, and one of the key things with opioid use from a, a prescription standpoint is, if you do have some of those precursors, if you do have a family history of addiction, even if it's not with opioids, if you do um, maybe not live in the best environment conducive to healthy living, there's a lot of contributing factors to be aware of when you're getting that prescription and to have that conversation with your doctor. And then the doctor's responsibility to treat you accordingly. Um how long are you on that pain regimen? Are you maybe supposed to be in a pain management specialty area versus a primary care one? There's a lot of different factors that go into it. But yes, we do have a percentage of the population that their substance use disorder starts out of a prescription of an opioid.
0: When we or our loved ones go to the doctor, how should we approach talking to them? Let's say they're saying, we think you need to go on fentanyl. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what should that conversation sound like?
1: I think it's like any other medical conversation with your doctor, that there's a level of patient advocacy that comes from you as the patient. Um, I think looking at all of your treatment options and making choices is part of the conversation. For for pain specifically, very rarely is there one route to your treatment regimen. Very rarely is it, here's a prescription, this is the best course, only course of options. Um, for a lot of individuals, there's multiple options for treatment, and that's the conversation to have so that you know what they are, what's best fit for you, what has high risk, what has low risk, pretty much the same questions you'd ask with any other medical condition that you have.
0: Is there a genetic predisposition to addiction to opioids? For substance use disorder as a whole,
1: there's predispositions, um, genetic ones, for sure, research evidence is that. Um, but then there are some that are environmentally driven, um, social determinants such as poverty. Mm-hmm. All There's right. direct correlations um, to other contributing factors there. So it's not only genetics, but genetics can play a big role.
0: Sure. What are some of the signs of addiction?
1: So for substance use disorder, I think one of the, the trickiest parts, especially if you're a loved one, one of the trickiest parts is understanding differences between dependence and full-blown addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I can be on a medication such as a um, a painkiller and develop dependence within 7, 14, 21 days to it, that if I stop taking it, I'll go through withdrawal, whatever that withdrawal symptom is for those substances. If I'm a nicotine user, I'm going to have certain withdrawal symptoms when I stop maybe smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. If I'm... Um, If I'm dependent on alcohol, I'm going to go through certain withdrawal symptoms. If I'm dependent on opiates, I'm going to go through certain withdrawal symptoms, all of which are different per substance. But the fact that you're going through withdrawal when you stop using it is a big sign of dependence. Mm -hmm. Addiction and having a clinically diagnosed substance use disorder, um, some of the key differences are compulsion maybe engaging in some risky, harmful behaviors to yourself or others that you can't stop doing and you have to have the substance to maintain. Avoiding withdrawal. Um, to the point where that's the reason you continue to keep using, is you don't want to feel those withdrawal symptoms, which is where we we see some of the high intensity with opiate use. Mm-hmm. They're severe withdrawal symptoms. Um, they're painful. They make you sick, um, to the point where, just like anyone else, we don't like to feel bad. Right. Nobody we like to, to feel, feel better. Yeah. Um, it's just in this case, when you're <laughs> You know, you're addicted to that medication. Feeling better oftentimes involves continuing the use of that substance, Mm -hmm. despite the havoc that it's wreaking in your life. So those are some key differences between dependence and full-blown addiction. We have a lot of individuals in our community um, that are dependent on their medications. That's not necessarily a harmful or bad thing. It's when it goes to that next level where you're engaging in not-so-great behaviors to support the use of that substance. You're talking about
0: criminal behavior.
1: Any kind of behavior that is harmful to yourself or others, whether Mm -hmm. it's from a health perspective, a criminal perspective, um, uh, being a productive member of society perspective, things such as being a productive parent, etc. There's a lot of different factors that go into that.
0: Is another issue that in almost all of our homes, you can find opioids. Uh, I listened to a podcast about a doctor who became addicted to opioids and his main source were his friends' medicine cabinets.
1: Yeah, so I think there's definitely research. I can't tell you our local data, and um, that's not something that's been thoroughly researched locally, but from a state and national perspective, there's definitely a correlation of access to any prescription medications mm-hmm. in someone's medicine cabinet and then the dangers of some of those. Um, higher intensity medications such as narcotics. And if they're being used by someone they're not appropriately prescribed for, the dangers and risks that go along with that. But yes, medicine cabinets are an easy access point, whether they're your own or whether you're in someone else's home. Um, we, we have a population that can be very vulnerable and that's our elderly aging population. They may have multiple caregivers coming in and out of their home and they're on multiple medications, narcotics included. Um, how do you safeguard that and how do you protect that and how do you advocate for that so that you're not removing medications that they clearly need and are appropriate for, but you're also safeguarding them when they're in a home.
0: Do we have a means of disposing of opioids in our community, like a a drop box at the police station or something?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, We have a medication collection disposal program. It's actually led by the district attorney's office, who oversees all of our law enforcement agencies. And our law enforcement agencies were very blessed in Franklin County and Fulton that they all participate. So it's really any medication, over-the-counter, prescription, expired, unused, unwanted, really anything that you have in your household that you would typically and probably inappropriately put in the trash or flush down a do toilet do not
0: flush it down the do toilet not. and do not throw it in the garbage do
1: not um, for multiple environmental reasons as well as misuse reasons mm. um So, yeah, every law enforcement agency has a medication collection box. They're typically in the lobbies. of And um, that's a no
0: questions asked, right? No
1: questions asked. You don't have to sign off on anything. It's completely anonymous, Mm -hmm. and they accept a wide variety. Um, One thing we did offer, as our department offered to law enforcement is, One of the things we started to look at is some harm reduction strategies for the county with this opioid epidemic and what it looks like for us and what it feels like for us. And one of the things we came to is, you know, hey, we have a lot of people in the community that don't have a means to appropriately dispose of their sharps, EpiPens, insulin needles, hypodermic needles, etc. And part of that, you can help safeguard your community from not having needles in places that they shouldn't be, but you're also working with a population that has multiple sharps in their home for their medical purposes and have no way to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Um, So we approached law enforcement and said, hey, you have your medication collection programs. What if we give you biohazard sharps receptacles? Would you be willing to collect them and open that up to the community as another safe place to take them? And all of them jumped on board and said yes. So that's also another service that's available in the same lobby. It's just a separate container.
0: And I think that that message needs to get out, the co- the correct disposal of certainly needles but unused medications as mm-hmm. well. Let's talk about the stigmas surrounding substance abuse disorders. Mm-hmm. And when we spoke on the phone, you mentioned that, you know, it, it reaches a point where people will not seek help. Mm-hmm. So... Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I think, um, and this isn't anything new. This has been going on for decades and decades, where, you know, if someone who is struggling with something that their community shames— it makes it very difficult for them to want or feel comfortable to reach out to services that will help them with that very issue. And that's across the board. That's mental health disorder. That's substance use disorder. It can be issues related to poverty and reaching out for financial help. When you're in a community that um, has strong, at times, conservative values that you're responsible for yourself, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you take care of yourself and your family – when someone can't necessarily do that because they're not 100% healthy, it, it can cause issues with reaching out for that very help. And we see that ring true all the time with substance use disorder and all of the negative st- stigma that goes along with it, right? You made this bed lay in it. You made a choice to use. You now have to deal with it. It's a weakness. It's a moral failing. All of those typical um stigmatizing labels will keep people from seeking out help. And at some times, you know, we're in a zone right now where some of our substance use is lethal. And that really is what the opioid epidemic's about. Substance use disorder has been here for many, many, many years. It's been with
0: humankind forever.
1: Absolutely. And will always pose as an issue moving forward. Um, But when you look at some of these substances and the lethality that goes along with even one-time use, it's why we are where we are, and this is such an urgent, imminent issue to address. But substance use disorder as a whole, you know, treatment is treatment, and to engage in a treatment process can be scary no matter what substance you're using. So one of the things that goes along with that is if we can reduce stigma, make people feel safe and give them a good experience engaging in those services, they're more likely to engage, more likely to stay in them, and more likely to actually plug into recovery, which is the long-term goal. Treatment's episodic. It's short-term. It's meant to be short-term. It's to get you on a path of recovery. Recovery is the long-term sustainable plan.
0: Is one of the bigger issues that – people with substance abuse disorders face is their employers need to know that they're in treatment.
1: Um, or,
0: I th- it, you know, do they have to leave their job for any period of time to undergo treatment?
1: I think it depends on a couple of things. One, the type of treatment. There's a difference between needing a community-based treatment model like outpatient, where you're going on your own one or two times a week for an hour or two with your counselor. That's very different than um, needing a a rehabilitative rehab Mm -hmm. type of treatment where you need to go for one, two, three, six months um, before you come back to your community. That's where we tend to see employment become an issue. Either the job can't be held the employer maybe doesn't have like EAP or um,
0: what is EAP?
1: Um, employment assistance programs okay. across Thank the you. board. Substance use disorder falls within that. If you have an employer that doesn't have those type of wellness programs, it can be very difficult for the person to make a decision to go to the level of care they need if right. they know they're not going to have a job to come back to. Right.
0: That's a big decision.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I didn't have those benefits and I needed a rehabilitative service, I don't know if I could go for a month without income. I don't right. know if I could go a month with leaving my family behind. So those are very real decisions people are faced with. So yeah, I think it would be great if every employer in Franklin County offered some kind of wellness program for their employees to get the assistance they need without fear of losing their job or income. Mm -hmm.
0: Do you talk to the family members of the people that come to you, or how do you talk to them about reducing the stigma? How how do we generally get that message out to our community? Let's reduce this notion that Weakness, failed moral character—these ideas that really are a- antiquated.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and not research-based anymore. I mean, you know, we definitely, as a department, value the disease model of addiction. It's science-based. It's research. We're in a different time than what we were even ten years ago. We have research now to make decisions and uh, and get people the help that they need. I think that's a twofold question. I think do do we work with family members who? Want to be part of the solution? Absolutely. Do we force them into working with us? Absolutely not. Um, It is very choice based. Sometimes families aren't a healthy outlet for the individual going into treatment, and those barriers do need to be put up. In the clinical world, we call them boundaries, making sure you're implementing healthy boundaries. So it's twofold. It's really what's best for the individual. But I think to reduce stigma and make the community aware, one, that it exists. And just be real and acknowledge that it exists is its own effort. And then once that's acknowledged, what do you do about it? How do you help eliminate it ultimately? Not just reduce it. We want to eliminate it. There's multiple prong approach to doing that. And we definitely have some groups within the county that our office is involved in that are trying to do that. The Franklin County Overdose Task Force, um, that's one of their strategic plan goals, right, is to acknowledge stigma and then how do we eliminate it? What do we need to put in place to get the community on board to do that? But the community does need to invest in this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a a difficult challenge for any community that we need to help take care of each other. Um, We need to look out for ourselves and we need to make ourselves whole and and prioritize our self-care. But we also need to help our neighbor. Mm -hmm. And if our neighbor needs help, um, not getting so hung up in any philosophical challenges we may have on this issue, but really pulling our bootstraps up and helping them, get the help that they need, and then once they're getting that help, help them maintain and sustain it. And that's where family comes in. Healthy family comes in, healthy supports. Um, for someone with substance use disorder, sometimes they've burned bridges.
0: I sometimes that would think that'd be pretty common.
1: Sometimes all of that external stuff that you've engaged in that people see and feel and experience burns bridges and makes people less likely to trust you. Um, And that's where you do have to regain that trust. And a lot of times that is through going through treatment and plugging into recovery and changing your life, which is very difficult for any of us to do, substance use disorder or not.
0: Sure. So how how does someone engage your services? Let's say someone feels like it's time. What do they do? So
1: for treatment, we offer prevention services, treatment services, case management, and then recovery. So we actually cover the entire continuum. So something as simple as if you're a school district and you want a presentation on latest drug trends, call us. We can do that. That falls in our prevention unit. If you need a medication lockbox, you're an agency working with high-risk individuals or a vulnerable population, and they need to safeguard their meds, we offer a medication lockbox campaign. Call our office. For treatment and case management, um, which is our kind of heftiest unit within the entire department, it's our highest utilized um, department, there's a lot of ways to access that service. You can access it through other professional agencies you may be involved in. You may be at your primary care doctor having a really intense conversation about your alcohol use and some of the, the medical stuff that's coming out of that. Your primary care can refer you to our office easy peasy. You could be not involved with any professional services and realize, hey, I need help. You can call our office. We'll go through that process with you. And what those processes usually entail is um, everything's confidential. That's one of the ways we try and have, have the community trust us in terms of it, what you say to us and what you share with us, even over the phone, is confidential. We can't share with anyone. HIPAA protected? It's not just HIPAA. Um, drug and alcohol confidentiality regulations are, are the stringence in the land. Um, federally and state. Um, so we are in kind of a different category that well supersedes HIPAA. Oh, interesting. Um, so for people to call in and know that that information is not going anywhere outside of that department tends to make them feel a little bit more safe and, and comfortable with telling us the truth. And well, what's if really they don't feel on. like
0: they can be vulnerable, I mean, couldn't you really open up? Or exposed. Right, right. right. That you're not
1: exposed. It is a small community. People know ev- We're tied in some way or another, professionally or personally. People need that assurance that their info is going to be confidential. Um, So when they call in, it's really based on what they need, what they're presenting with. They may not know what they need. We help them figure that out. One thing I can't stress enough is if someone has some kind of financial barrier to treatment, um, we do offer financial assistance for people who are underinsured, People that have maybe private insurance, but they have this really hefty deductible that needs met before they can get care. We won't pay for the deductible, but we will pay for their treatment. Um, And then, of course, individuals that are uninsured or individuals that have applied for Medicaid and have been denied for some reason. That tends to be the primary population we help financially. And That all starts with assessment. We do an assessment with them that's free of charge. We do that assessment, figure out what level of care they need, what type of treatment they need, and then we work with them on best fit. Maybe you need to go to a rehab that's, you know, in the Pittsburgh area. Maybe you need to go to a partial hospitalization that's in the Reading area. I mean, we contract with multiple treatment providers across the entire state for those higher levels of care. And then we help them coordinate that, get into it, get picked up for it, and get there. Um, so not only do we provide financial assistance, but we provide case management. So they're not going through all that red tape on their own. They're not jumping all of those hurdles on their own. They're already in a vulnerable state. I was
0: going to say they have something that they're dealing with, and paperwork right. isn't going to help.
1: I mean, imagine the, the kind of processes we go through when we are clear-headed just to get a referral to a specialist. It's or when we got to call our insurance company yeah. to figure out our benefits – you know that can frustrate a lot of people going through that process we take all of that on for the individuals that come through our office and help actually coordinate the care it's it's a common day for us to coordinate Someone getting into detox or residential and having them being picked up from our parking lot Mm -hmm. and that coordination with transport, or someone who's presented at the hospital in the ER and they need to go to rehab. We work with WellSpan to get them connected to that service and they get picked up from the ER. Mm -hmm. Um, So, really, whatever they need in that moment of time to get them started in the process, we'll assist with through case management.
0: How do you engage with law enforcement since there's a lot of illegal activity? going on here?
1: Yeah, um, law enforcement has been a really great partner for us. I can honestly say each municipality has worked very well with our department as a single agency, but also with our department in our larger groups and coalitions. And I think, um, you know, adopting that, that message of we're not we're not going to arrest our way out of this. No, we're not. Um, no matter what the issue is, we're not going to arrest our way out of substance use disorder. So they've been really great with um, looking at diversionary tracks, calling our office to help people get into treatment versus being charged in, and potentially jailed. Um, and the district attorney has been wonderful in developing those processes and getting law enforcement on board to adopt and actually practice. Mm-hmm. Within them. Um, So we've seen really good results there. And then, you know, when we look at our overdose survivors, individuals who have overdosed and uh, maybe EMS or law enforcement has been involved in that process of reviving them, the Good Samaritan law is in place for a reason. And law enforcement has been really good about knowing what those parameters of that law are and respecting it.
0: Can you talk about that for a second, just to clarify what you mean by the Good uh, Good Samaritan law in this instance?
1: Yeah, Good Samaritan law has existed for a while. It was amended, I believe, back in 2014 to include overdose. And that's overdose from anything. That could be alcohol poisoning. That's an overdose. It could be overdose on fentanyl or heroin. It's really an overdose of any substance type. But what the Good Samaritan did was pulled overdose into it and put a stipulation in there that the individual who is the overdose victim or individuals who are aiding in the overdose reversal— are protected by law and can't be charged. Um, So that was huge. I mean, when that law was implemented, that was huge. And the reason it was pushed for so heavily is because we had a lot of over across the state. We had a lot of overdose survivors not getting help. We had people around the overdose survivor just bolting leaving them. I'm not going to call police. I'm not going to call 911. I'm going to get in trouble. This person's going to get in trouble. Um, So we had people being dropped off at the hospital setting and people just bolting. People were dying simply because others were afraid they were going to get in trouble and trying to help them.
0: Has your organization, since this epidemic began, had to really adapt very quickly? In other words, has this been just a surge, a tidal wave?
1: In terms of urgency, yes. In terms of handling a community that struggles with a disease, no. Mm -hmm. Um, It's something that's been in multiple communities. Multiple states have been working with substance use disorder for many, many years. But with the opioid epidemic, um, yeah, there's a sense of urgency where you have to pull multiple stakeholders together to work with one individual in the moment that day, not five days from then, not two weeks from then, not figuring out some strategic plan goal, um, but really responding to it in the moment. So yes, we've been under duress in the past couple of years in terms of getting those resources together, deploying them, and getting everyone on board. It's had to happen very, very
0: quickly. Are you adequately funded?
1: We, from a state perspective, could definitely use more funding across the board. Um, So to answer that question transparently, no, we're underfunded from the state. We went from a fifth-class county to a fourth-class county, in my opinion, overnight in a few years. But our funding allocation didn't change with that transition. So we're, we're servicing more people, more complex needs. In a high duress situation, we're not adequately funded. Um, do we make do and are we able to get people what they need currently? Yes. Um, but to be able to build infrastructures and be able to build systems that appropriately work, funding is needed to do that. And we tend to put funding into service delivery, into people that need the help. But we also have to be able to build a system that can sustain that long term, no matter what surge comes through the door. Mm-hmm. That's where we tend to lack the funding.
0: Right. Right. Are you uh, working with the medical community on any level to kind of deal with what I'm calling over-prescribing?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple different factors to that. Um, the state's prescription drug monitoring program, you'll hear PDMP as an acronym thrown around. Um, we were, Pennsylvania was one of the last states to implement a prescription drug monitoring program. And in my opinion, professionally, that is where a lot of this Prescribing practice and education, and where the medical community can really empower and help make change locally, that's where that falls. Um, it houses all of your prescriptions, um, the prescriber, as well as the dispenser, aka the pharmacies. They both communicate and utilize that system so that you know what that person's prescription history is so that as a clinician and as a prescriber, you can make better decisions on what what you're writing scripts out for. And since the implementation of the PDMP, we've seen some local change with how prescribers are actually treating their patients when it comes to pain, and that's been instrumental. And that is definitely a way the medical community has stepped up to the plate to help um, curb and prevent future over prescribing.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's great to hear because we hear these stories of the pill mills.
1: And they do exist. And that cash cow business does def- definitely still reign true. Um, I can't say that that's necessarily the case here locally, but other communities and states really struggle with that aspect of prescribing. Mm-hmm.
0: So getting back to fentanyl and heroin, I'm trying to understand the intersection here. Heroin has never been legal. And, you know, it's an illegal substance. So do people go from fentanyl to heroin?
1: So we don't see a ton of heroin use in Franklin County anymore. We made this shift from prescription opioids, which are are your painkillers, that category, to heroin four or five years ago. But that went out the door very quickly when synthetic fentanyl hit the street. Okay. Um, it's much more potent than heroin. Um, it's very accessible. It's very cheap. And again, it's non-pharmaceutical fentanyl. Um, so it is synthetic. It, and, you know, it, it definitely, because of its potency, produces a certain effect from that, that someone that struggles with a substance use disorder at times will seek out. Um, so we saw that transition happen very, very quickly here where we had heroin use for a short period of time outside of the 80s and 90s. But we had that that trend really transition to fentanyl very, very quickly. And that's why we saw that spike in 2016 and 2017 with our overdose fatalities. You that say fentanyl
0: is easier to get.
1: It's highly accessible. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can compare what's easier and what's harder to get. I think accessibility is just... Um, the foundation of h- how can you access these substances, and fentanyl can be very easy to access in our community
0: and, and that's coming from where do we know where the fentanyl comes from? Is it
1: I think it comes from a multiple um, source sources from interstates in our metropolitan areas. I mean we are in kind of the middle of Philly hmm. and Baltimore and Jersey, yeah. and okay. you know we have those intersects from a highway perspective. Um, And it does seem to be coming from the outside in versus being manufactured here. I know there have been some cases of that that have been prosecuted. um, But for the most part, it seems to be coming from the outside in.
0: And what about recidivism with opioids? What is the likelihood of the user giving back in?
1: So substance use disorder in general, um, you know, recovery is key. And having your recovery supports are key, and everybody's journey is different. It's not a cookie-cutter journey, Um, and evidence definitely supports that. Opioids specifically, because of how quickly you can become dependent on them and how horrible the withdrawal symptoms from them can be, tend to be along with methamphetamine tend to be the two substances that are very difficult to maintain long-term sobriety Mm -hmm. if you don't have those recovery supports in play if you're not changing your people places and things if you're not committing to a lifetime of recovery from all substances not just opioids we have a lot of individuals that struggle with opioid use disorder stay away from opioids but they still drink alcohol that substance use disorder is substance yeah. use disorder so sometimes another substance use can trigger falling right back in to opiate use and it it is a difficult substance to to be in long-term recovery and so from. people
0: have to this is a lifelong journey they're going on in mm-hmm. recovery
1: it's maintenance it's like any other chronic disease where you know it's never going to go away but you can certainly maintain your healthiness through it mm-hmm. and for substance use disorder that's everything recovery finding out what works for you in recovery is it traditional 12-step meetings like aa or na is it um you know a trusted individual that can serve as a mentor to you is it your family and your natural supports is it busying yourself is it finding recreational hobbies that produce those high levels of endorphins for you naturally what is that for you is it all of the above and figuring out that journey and what works is part of the actual journey um, so until people figure out what works for them, relapse is real. It's yeah. definitely a real thing. It doesn't have to be part of your recovery, but we certainly understand that it can be. And that also is why supports need to be put in place. So if relapse does occur, you can engage right back into services, get back on track, and keep it moving versus yeah. being shamed and guilted that you relapsed.
0: Right, right. Um,
1: so that that's definitely something that goes along with stigma as well.
0: So – how is Franklin Fulton County doing? Is the situation stabilized, getting worse, getting better?
1: We're seeing improvement. We're also seeing some shifts in terms of substance use, um, which we tend to see nationally any we kind of crack down on one substance and kind of put all these, like the opioid epidemic, you put all these strategies out there that are very opioid specific, you'll see other substances being turned to. And usually when you're backing off of opiates, you will see this trend going towards stimulant use cocaine, um, prescription stimulants, methamphetamine. Do we see a ton of that here in Franklin and Fulton County yet? No. Is it on the horizon? Sure. And we need to brace for that. Not that that will be the new epidemic, but we're always going to have substance use trends, which is why it's really important to build systems that maintain services for individuals no matter what the substance use trend is. So that's what we're working towards. And I, I do believe in the past few years that's one huge improvement for both counties is to look at things from a macro level so that you have these system builds, but then also on the day to day how do we get people help right here and right now and what service. Right. Macro and micro all working together, saturate your community with all those services and you just keep it moving towards healthiness. Would
0: legalization change anything?
1: Legalization in what Of sense? drugs. Of any substance? Of all drugs, yeah, drugs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's definitely something that other countries have embarked on, and they have seen their results from doing so. I, I don't know with a lot of the confounds in the United States and Western medicine and our need for instant gratification in our culture. I don't know if that would be best fit. I don't know if it wouldn't.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things out there. The examples we get are like smaller countries like Portugal. Sure, it's successful there. You're a tiny country. Right. I want to ask a final question about uh, kids, Mm -hmm. students, trends that you're seeing that maybe we should be aware of.
1: Yeah, typically, um, and this looks similar in both Franklin and Fulton, even though demographically they're very different, with youth, um, with youth use. We tend to see, and, and there's this wonderful survey that's implemented in our school districts every two years. It's called the Pennsylvania um Youth survey, it's the PAYS, P A Y S. The PAYS survey really um, gets delivered to sixth, eighth, tenth, and twelfth graders every two years. And it's focused on a lot of different areas. Substance use and just drug use in general is one of them. And what we tend to see out of that survey, what we tend to see anecdotally, and what we tend to hear from speaking with kids directly in our two communities is um, the, the same old predominant substances. Alcohol, tobacco, marijuana—we mm. don't see much um, <laughs> illicit or prescription opioid use within our youth until we get to that like 18 to 25 year old group, and that's post high school. Um, and they're a very vulnerable group, right? Their brains are not fully developed yet, but yet they have all this responsibility. Well, they got the world, driver's being an adult, licenses, jobs, credit cards, college. You know, they're really figuring out their own journey in life and what they want to do with it. And it's a very big experimental time frame. Um, But in terms of our school-aged youth, those are the big three.
0: I hate to say this, but that's kind of good news in a way, isn't it, that they're sticking just to those substances?
1: It's an opportunity to continue to have very streamlined focus on your prevention and intervention efforts when you've narrowed it down to two to three.
0: Okay. Correct. Why don't you go ahead and give out your website and where people can reach you?
1: Yeah, so I would just advocate that if you need assistance, information, actual help with anything in regards to um, drug and alcohol services, prevention, treatment, or recovery, to just reach out to us. You can Google us with some key terms like drug and alcohol, Franklin County, um, DNA services, and it'll pop you to our website, which is on our County of Franklin's webpage. Um, On our webpage, there are a host of links and resources that you can connect to. Even if you don't feel comfortable calling and speaking with us directly, we do that intentionally. We can also be reached via email. We have a generic email that comes into our departments. People feel uncomfortable calling, but they still want to connect, and that's ffda at franklincountypa.gov. Or old school, just give us a ring, and we'll walk you through whatever help that you need and get you where you need to go.
0: And it's confidential from the moment you pick up the phone.
1: Or the moment the email comes in or the moment the text comes in.
0: Absolutely. Well, great, April. Thanks so much for being with us on the show today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. And find us online at progresspod.org.